Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Years ago, as I was starting in the pastoral ministry, after beginning the second Easter service that I ever had to preach, for a number of years, preaching Easter was not the joy that it should be, not because I had any emotional trauma, but I wasn't sure exactly what to say. My commitment had been to preach Christ crucified and resurrected every week. And then people come, including people who may not make it to church on a regular basis and expecting something, and I felt this pressure probably from within to say something new and creative. And I had no idea what to say. As I had pastored for a few years, it dawned on me, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to have anything new necessarily for Easter. And then a few years later, I realized it's okay. In fact, it's probably preferable that I don't. My intention this morning is to simply go through, not the new sto- a new story, but to consider an old story, a story and a message that is probably familiar to most of you who are here. The purpose, I hope, is to just help you be reminded of how great God's love is for you as he has demonstrated it in Christ. And for those who may still be on their spiritual journey, Perhaps that you will hear it in a way that God will speak to you, and you'll hear it in a new way that will give you his grace, faith, that you may also pass from death to life and enter into the the new birth that is promised to us. That's my hope this morning as we look at a familiar story, not in a new way, but in a way that I hope is a gentle reminder to reaffirm faith or that God will bless you and grant you faith. Our scripture text this morning, our focus is Romans 5, 8, although for the sake of context, I'll begin reading in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. Let's go to the Lord and pray that he would speak to us now. Our Father, we come. We come to your word. We come to this time where we listen for your voice. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might break through, whether the hardness of our heart 
or the confusions of our own minds, our own pride, or even our own self-righteousness. And you would speak your truth, reminding us of the truth of what happened in your death, the death and resurrection of your son, and what that means for us. That we may rest in him and in him alone. That we may know how great your love is and that we may continue to dive deeper into thy truth that our understanding may also increase. Not merely so we may know, but so that we may live in the joy of knowing we are loved, the comfort of knowing we will never be forsaken, the hope that has been assured and the hope of what is yet to come. Father, pray now that our love may grow as we see how much we have been loved. Our love not only toward you, but toward one another and toward a world that is around us. Speak now that we may grow more and more like Jesus. Let your word form us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I suspect it's a safe assumption to say that every person on the planet has a desire to be loved and accepted. The problem, though, is that our being loved and accepted is often in direct proportion to our desirability or to our, our own worth. If we look good or we act cool or if we have some characteristic that is able to be used as a marketable commodity, chances are at some point or another, you will be accepted and perhaps even loved. But if we do not have those traits, or if we no longer possess those traits, this world will throw us onto a junk pile. And that concerns me, because I know what I am. I'm a broken down junker. I have a lot of miles on me. I turned 50 this year, causing me to give some thought. The insights I have from that point in my life is this, is that I'm too old to be considered a new model, and yet not quite old enough to be considered a classic. And so I'm in that in-between period where I have no inherent value. I just kind of run along, things not working the way they used to or the way they should. Periodically, noises that are unexplainable. <laughs> Learning to adjust and compensate because this is the only vehicle I have to drive through life. I realize I'm just a, an old jalopy. Now, it may be perverse, but I, I do take some comfort in this, is that I realize that I'm not the only old, old jalopy here this morning. In fact, the scripture tells us we all are. Paul tells us this, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's something that is broken in all of us, even from the point that we were delivered. There was something that was wrong. John agrees with Paul, and he says, if we claim to be without sin, we, we deceive ourselves. In other words, we may pretend, not only for others, but even to ourselves, that as long as we buff up, as long as we are able to make things look good, that we are fine. But the reality is we're still all 
deeply flawed. We all fall into that category of old jalopies, some just more obvious than others. A few years ago, we were looking for a new car, and for us, when we say a new car, we were looking for a new car for us, uh, pre-broken in by someone else for a while. And we made our rounds looking both at just, it, 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 we were not an urgent, but we were looking, knew we would need one, and so we looked at used car dealerships, and we looked online, and we looked at the classifieds in the newspaper just to see what was out there. And at that time, I made note of some of the more interesting classified ads or ads that I saw that were advertising autos, and, and I, I, a few of them I, I thought I would share this morning. One that I saw simply said, good interior, and that's all it said. <laughs> Another one said, no transmission. I thought it was peculiar. I probably needed one, but... I decided that was probably for somebody else. Another car uh, that was advertised said, needs love. <laughs> I guess actually it was a good ad. I guess I would have got a few of you. And the one that struck me the most was the one that said, it's got a great personality. <laughs> And that automatically made me think back to my college days and realizing those were words you never wanted to hear if somebody was trying to set you up on a blind date. That was a bad omen just for something as simple as a single blind date. I certainly didn't want that to be the characteristic trait of my mode of transportation. I don't want a car that is going to have a personality. Perhaps his personality would be a sense of humor or playing practical jokes where it would work one place but not another. It would get you here or there, it would, just, it would start working and just say, just kidding, and just to see if you had a sense of humor. I wasn't looking for personality in my car. I was looking for boring stability that would get me from place to place. And so that was not the car for us. If you go to any used car dealership, you're, you're likely to see more than just a few cars that have a, a note on them or a sticker that just says, as is. I found that that's telling you something. It's telling you that they know that there's something wrong with it, whether they fixed it or not, and you're buying the car, uh, and you're taking your own chances because they've told you you should beware. But if it says as is, it's a tip-off and saying that there's a problem with it. In fact, some states, realizing that, have created what they call a, a lemon law. Not all states, but some states have said that it's okay for a dealership to buy back a car that has either been in a wreck or has had some uh, mechanical problems, buy it fix it up, and sell it again. But in order to uh, protect the, the buyers, these cars have to have a sticker of a lemon put in the windshield so that you know that the car has had a history of problems. Now think about it for uh, just a moment. Imagine you are in the need of a car, whether for yourself or you have teenagers, uh, and so you're not wanting to put a whole lot of money uh, into something. Uh, it's, you're wanting to hedge your bets a little bit, so you're not wanting to spend a lot but you go to a used car dealer and you see a, a nice looking, maybe SUV, strong enough that if it gets hit, your kids will be okay. Uh, but it's, it's sturdy and, and, it's, uh, and it looks like it's in good shape. And you see the sticker price on it, and the sticker price says it's just $4,800. The mileage is only 20,000 miles, so you know that it should be uh, around for quite a while. So the question is, do you buy it? 
Now, I suspect for most of us here, with the exception of a few who are master mechanics or engineers who or just like a challenge, the answer is no. As, as appealing as it may be or may, it may look, the potential as great as it may be, most of us are not interested in taking something on that we realize would quite likely backfire on us or, or cause us trouble down the road. Even when it seems to be a great deal, $4,800 for a car that doesn't work is, is not a great deal. And so most of us would probably pass on something that even looks as appealing as that. And when we look at ourselves honestly, when we are aware at one time or another, no matter how good we may look on the outside, all of us probably know that at some point or another, somebody could have rightly smacked a lemon sticker on us. We realize that there are flaws even if there's nobody else that knows them. Even if we spend an inordinate amount of time covering up our flaws or working hard on our strengths in order to compensate for areas that we are weak. We work hard to make sure that nobody is aware of those things. But deep down, most of us are very well aware that we are far from perfect. That Paul was right. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We know it. That's the fact of life. All of us qualify as being lemons. And when we think about that, some of us spend a lot of time trying not to think about that. But when those moments are particularly acute and we are, are very well aware of that, we begin to wonder about our desirability, our lovability, our worth. The good news of Easter is this, there is one who loves lemons. Romans 5.8 could rightly be written in this way, while we were still lemons, or while we were still junkers, God bought us. And he didn't pay, pay just the blue book value. He paid above sticker price. He traded in his own son to purchase you to make you his own. And it was not based upon your desirability. It was not based upon who you are. It's not even based upon who God saw you might be and that you would be the deal, that if he just got you, then you know, it would be easy to work with because God is able to make any of us into whatever he wants us to be. He is at work within those who belong to him. God did not purchase you at the expense of his own son because of something inherent in you. God did it simply because of himself. You were not loved because you were worthy of being loved. You were just loved. What I want you to see this morning is that that's what this whole week is about. Really, it's what all of life, but this whole week is a time on our ecclesiastical calendar where we highlight the reality so that it serves as a reminder to us of how greatly we are loved. Beginning with Palm Sunday when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem and fulfilling all of the prophecies, demonstrating both that he is a king and at the same time a humble king as he comes riding in on a donkey, to Monday Thursday when Jesus says to his disciples, I've been telling you for a long time that I'm going to lay down my life for you. The Son of Man must lay down his life. The Son of Man must die. I've been telling you that tonight is the night 
But before I go, I'm going to give you this meal so that you will remember continually and show the significance of what I'm doing. It's not just incidental, but this is the pivotal point as I lay my life down to Good Friday when Jesus' life was taken from him. And at the same time, as he also had said, nobody takes it, I lay it down for my people. To this resurrection day where the fullness of God's salvation has been made known. All of these events highlight to us a demonstration of how great God loves us. What I want you to see this morning are, are things in uh, two aspects. Ultimately, we need to see this, is that the death and the resurrection of Christ are two distinct actions on Jesus' part in his redemption, in our salvation. But they are inseparable. We only understand the fullness of one in light of the other. I mean, in one sense, it, it only makes sense. Without a death, there is no resurrection. And so to have a resurrection without also having Jesus having given his life, having his life taken, would not make sense at all. On the other hand, if there was a death and there was no resurrection, we would be left without hope. One of the things that we need to understand is this. First is that Christ's death, in Christ's death, God demonstrates his love. God proved the depth and the intensity and in the intimacy of his love. While we were yet sinners. It's not while we were trying to be spiritual and God said, you know, I'm impressed with the effort. It's not while we were trying to do nice stuff. He died for me at a point that I and all of us would have been essentially at our, our lowest points, our, our worst state passage tells us why we were still his enemies. God demonstrated his love for us at that point. So it wasn't even a matter of not doing enough good things. We were doing nothing good. We wanted, we were at war with God. The nicest thing we could say is we wanted nothing to do with him except that as God is pursuing a people for himself and we're not living for him, that's an act of war against God. A war we can't win war we don't really want to engage in if we had any common sense whatsoever. But nevertheless, that's the standing that everyone has until they are made part of God, us family, through God's grace and faith in what God has done for us. In one sense, it's a picture of us all pre-conversion, pre-new life in Christ. And that's the ultimate sense. But at the same time, it's something that I think that we all need to be reminded of in day in and day out. Because even when we have been found in Christ, even when we've been converted, we have believed and repented, and we live our lives, it's very easy to live our lives assuming that we must earn God's love and favor, even though he has demonstrated that he gave it when we were his enemies. Theologians use a Latin phrase that's, it's, it's called simul justus et peccator. You can share that with your friends. I'm sure they'll be impressed. But what it means is, even when we are in Christ, it means we are then simultaneously justified and sinners. In other words, we are declared 
righteous. And before God, because of what Jesus has done, we are as right as we possibly can. And yet even in that state, while we're still in this life, the reason that I'm a broken down junker is because sin has taken an effect in my life. And it's still, while I'm forgiven of it, it still has an impact. And it shapes my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my responses, my emotions. It has its effect in my life. Because even while I am a Christian, I am forgiven and I am, in, I, I am still a sinner and I am in need of being reminded that it's all about God's love. It was not when I'm trying to do things spiritual and it is not now. And God's grace has been demonstrated to us perfectly and it's been given to us when we were at our lowest point. The word in this text is in, in Greek is the word agapao, which is in Greek it means it's a reflection of God's intimate, extensive, holistic love, not based on anything that is in us, but it's an expression of the character of the one who, exp- who gives it. It's a love that is given despite, even to not receive anything in return. It's a love that loves everything, even aware of the flaws. It's the word that says here that God demonstrated his love to that extent, even when we are in our worst state. As I stop and I think about that, it does something for me. Because I have to realize at that point that for the first time, and in, in many respects the only time in my life, I'm engaged in a relationship that has absolutely nothing to do with my performance. Even in my own marriage, as Carolyn graciously agreed to, to marry me and to give her love for uh, the rest of our lives, I'm not so foolish as to realize that she would not have done that if she assumed that I was going to be nothing but an obnoxious jerk to her and cause her misery the rest of her life. Gracious as she is, she may have chosen and would have chosen to love me, but not married me, not committed herself to me, not called me her own. But God's love is absolutely unconditional about these things. It's when we were being obnoxious jerks that God showed his love for us by sending his son who died for us. With God fully aware that even when we belong to him, our passions would wander, our affections would be given freely to other things. Even aware of that, God called us, sent his son who died for us. now belonging to him, even if I am desiring to be good, even if I'm committed to having my, my time in his word, even if I'm engaged in ministry or advancement of the kingdom in some way, whether I'm committing my, my time, my energies, my financial resources for, for that purpose. God's love was so great poured out upon us at that time when Christ died that it doesn't increase now even when I'm trying to please him. It's not that there's a limit. It's that it was poured out limitless in the first time. It was like an ocean of grace that was poured out, an ocean of of love that was poured out upon us. And now we stand engulfed in that love as soon as we believe. And at times when we are trying to do good things, it may be like we take buckets and try to add, but we're only drawing from the ocean that we're standing in. And even if you could add to the ocean by throwing buckets of water into it, how would you know? Our efforts are so insignificant that there would be no measurable difference. That's how great God's love was for us from the very beginning when Christ died for us and he granted us the grace to believe. And now if I believe that and if I understand that and know that that is true, that God has already proved that he loves me while I was yet a sinner, I can 
I can say, not only to God, but reminding myself, Lord, I can rest in, in you today. I have nothing to prove. It's not about my love. It's about your love. See, that's the radical nature of the gospel, and that's what the cross was all about. Christ's crucifixion, Christ's death, is a demonstration of God's love. Now, as wonderful a message as that is, that would be an appropriate Good Friday message because it's the day that Christ died. But we stand here on Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection, and, and we should probably ask ourselves this question. As glorious as the message of Good Friday is, what difference would it have made if Christ had not risen? What if he had not risen? Would it have been an issue? And I would say to you, it would be an issue for two reasons. One, we would be left without hope. And I also would suggest that had he not raised, that he would have had a job that was still not signed off on the dotted line. Without minimizing what Jesus says on the cross on Friday, it is finished. There is an essential nature to the resurrection for our faith and for our life and for our hope. During the times of the Old Testament, once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies chamber in the tabernacle or in the temple, and there he would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The sacrifice was accepted. The people were forgiven of their sin for another year. The covenant was renewed with their God, and God would continue to bless the people. If for some reason the sacrifice would not be accepted, then the people were left feeling the weight of their sin. They were at war with God, and they were left standing on their own two feet. The high priest who would go in every year had to prepare himself to go in, as, to pre prepare himself before he offered the sacrifice. He went through a, a ritual purification as well as his own repentance of his own heart and his own sin in order that he would be allowed to go in and perform the sacrifice. It wasn't a matter of just somebody going in who had the authority, going before a holy and perfect God, going through the right mechanics, offering the sacrifice, coming out and saying, okay, that's covered for another year. If the priest himself was not perfect, it made, declared perfect in purity. God would strike him down in his holiness and his presence and he would die there in the Holy of Holies chamber. And the sacrifice would not be accepted and the people would be left. In fact, the high priest would go in and part of the tradition was that the high priest would go in and he would have a rope tied to his ankle. And he went in and if he was taking a little longer than people were comfortable, they would tug on the rope and if there was no tug coming back, the people would get all the men together and they just have to crank them out of there. At the same time, realizing the sacrifice didn't take, our priest was not sufficient. The sacrifice wasn't accepted. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest as well as the fact that he is our sacrifice. Jesus, who was pure and perfect, went in to the presence of God to offer the sacrifice, in this case, the spotless lamb that was himself. He laid his life down for his people. According to the Old Testament pattern that had Jesus not come out, we would have reason to believe that the sacrifice was not accepted. At the very best, we would be left wondering and saying, did he die? Was, did, and he said it was finished, but do we have any reason to believe that? I mean, we would hope, but it would be some level of presumption on our part because we would not know. 
How do you tell the difference between one who truly has finished it in his death and taken upon himself our sin, paid our punishment, and a guy who's a nut who just declares it's finished when he dies on the cross for his own sin? We would have no way of really knowing. But even if redemption could be accomplished apart from the resurrection, at best we would have no hope. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he declared to all who saw him and all who believe, not only is it finished, not only have I conquered life and death, the sacrifice was accepted. You are forgiven of your sin because God put it all upon the spotless lamb, Christ himself. And therefore we have hope, not only the hope of our forgiveness, which we testify to. I want this hear the words again that we declared a moment ago in our, our confession of faith. But 1 Peter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, but who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's our hope, our faith, its foundation of it comes because of the hope that we have in the resurrection. We are born again to that living hope through the resurrection. And that's not the only promise that we receive. There are a number of promises, but if you were to flip ahead or make notes, Revelation 20, verse 6, there are several promises here that are for us who are here today both for our lives and for what is yet to come. In Revelation 20, verse 6, John wrote this, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And stop and think about that for a moment. Who shares in the first resurrection? Christ. He doesn't share. He did it. So it must be speaking of somebody else. Who are the ones who share in the, in the, in the first resurrection? That's all who believe. We share in the benefits, we share in the hope, we share in the effect of that first resurrection. And here are the promises. Over such, second death has no power. We are not promised that we will not pass from this life, but we're told that the power, that which we fear, death has no power. Now most of us still will be uneasy in some way or another because we don't know all there is to know. And some of us are control freaks, and we want to know everything before we do it. But God's promise here is for those who have shared in the first resurrection, we have no worry about the power of death. We become inheritors of the second resurrection. Here's a second promise, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. In other words, those who share in the first resurrection, now, it's not that you now have to quit your job and do what you do and become a priest. The fact is you are priests, which means you have full access to God communion and fellowship with God. You are able to function in a way that brings reconciliation to those who are alienated from God as you introduce them to God through, to, uh, through Jesus Christ. But you are not separated from God at all, but your worship is offered and received. Your faith, your prayer, you go directly to God. And finally we see, and they will reign for, with him for a thousand years. We will be with him. We need to understand biblical typology and numbers sometimes. A thousand years is 
often, the word number thousand was often thrown out when just something is just so extensive that you can't really count it. It's not like your thousand years are up, sorry. I hope you had fun. See if you can renew it next year. It just says, we have, there's no power. These are the promises that accompany the hope that is ours when we see the resurrection and know that when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. That we are forgiven. We are reconciled. We are now children of God, the ones that he loves. We come this day, which is Resurrection Sunday. Actually, every Sunday should be seen as Resurrection Sunday. We, on our calendar, just focus on this. But every Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And that reminder to us each week that we are loved more than we can imagine, not only forgiven, but we are greatly loved, provides us assurance. And that makes all the difference. Think about your own life, whether in the past or maybe hopefully not for many in the present, but what, how you feel when you are in love. You know, the world's wonderful. You see through rosy glasses. When you are loved and you are loved by the one you love, you are accepted by the one who you want to be accepted by. Now think about it when you want to be loved and accepted and your, either your love or your desire is unrequited. How do you feel then? I get kind of surly. Some of you know I'm surly anyway, so you can only imagine what happens uh, at other times. To know that I am loved not on the basis of who I am, but on the basis of God's grace makes all the difference. In this resurrection day, we realize that what God has promised has come true. That is our hope. That God has demonstrated his love for you. He gave his son. He loved you while he loved us while we were still junkers. He bought us as is. Let me pray. Father, let me come before you as I give thanks to you for allowing me to come. And we praise you. We stand amazed as we consider love that we, we've been told about, that we know, that we've experienced, and yet we're prone to forget. And even in our best days, we, we realize we have never come even close to the inexhaustible depth. I pray, Lord, that as we consider this message this day, that you would regird our faith in the hope of the resurrection and the hope of the promises that accompany it. May it be a reminder that your love cannot be conquered by anything. We cannot be separated from you. Father, let that love shape our hearts, our emotions, our affection, and even our own worth. For we who believe now are children of the living God, objects of his grace, the work of his hands being transformed more and more to become like Christ. Father, grant us the grace that we may believe ever increasingly that with that may come joy and peace. For we are in need. But you have promised. You have spoken. 
who have proven it. We offer our prayer in Christ, who is our Redeemer, our surety.